prayer. So today we're, we're up to this section in this series that I've been doing on why it is we do what we do when we come together and worship. And today we talk about prayer, how to pray. And all right, I, I have to give a disclaimer right at the front end of this one. I can't cover this whole thing in one message. I'm not even going to try. This is the kind of thing that could be a series of messages. So we're going to talk about prayer today, but, but you may well walk out of here today and say, there's so much you left out. And you're right. I have to be choosy, right? And I'm not even going to try to put it all in there because that's just overwhelming. In fact, I'm not even going to be selective and try to pack as much as I can in 20 minutes because that won't help either. We're, we're going to try to find just one takeaway out of this today. One thing that we can walk out of here today and say, all right, that's a helpful way for us to understand something about prayer as it comes to us, as something that we do here in church, as something that we take here from church and then practice in our lives outside of this place. So we'll talk about prayer today. And I'm going to do that with the words of a psalm. And, and it'll be up on the screen, but here's what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm going to encourage today to, to have that one open. So if there are Bibles in the racks or chairs and you want to follow along, I'm going to make some references to this psalm as we go through that help us to see this as the big picture. So I, I know when it's on the screen, you just see, you know, a few, few words at a time, a verse or two at a time. But as I go through this, and we're going to take a rather close look at this psalm, a psalm of prayer, and I'm going to make some references that show how this psalm fits together as a whole. So it, it might help to have it open in front of you as we go through this. Psalm 42 and 43 is what we're looking at, all right? Two psalms that come together, and they go together, and you'll see why it goes together as I read through this, how they fit together, all right? Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Here's what the psalmist writes. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. 
You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Prayer. All right, let, let's, let's talk about this psalm or these two psalms together as an example of prayer and how it's instructive for us about why it is that we pray together, what prayer means for us, and, and something that we can take away from that that helps us as we think about prayer and what that means for us, all right? So here's how I'm going to unpack this for us today. First of all, let me give a little bit of the story behind the story, okay? Let me give the background of what's going on in this psalm. So as, as if you have it open and you see that, we read through that, maybe some of those words were familiar, very familiar. Words that you've heard before, right? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for God. We've, we've heard words like that before for some of us, but I want us to get the picture. Where does this psalm come from, and what do these words really mean? What is the psalmist expressing here? So here's the backstory. Here's what comes behind this, all right, that, well, we, we see a structure taking place here in this psalm, a structure that shows, all right, there's a repeated refrain. Did you note that? You see it there at verse 5, and again at verse 11, and in chapter 43, verse 5, that, that repeated refrain that the psalmist says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That sort of gives structure. You can see then that there are three stanzas, verses, that go to this psalm. And it's sort of structured that way where the psalmist expresses something in a refrain, expresses something more than a refrain, and then expresses again and then a refrain. So we see that laid out before us in these psalms. But what is really being expressed here? Well, uh, take a look at, if you've got it open, take a look at the introduction, the part that I didn't read that comes actually right before verse 1, where it talks about, right, they, the psalm being a masculine from the sons of Korah, right? It's sort of the introduction there that goes to it. Uh, what's a masculine? Who's Korah? Some of those things. Uh, masculine is just a word for a certain type of song, but Korah. Who is Korah, and who are the sons of Korah? What is this psalmist really talking about? Because who is he? What, what, what are these words meant to me? Let, let's put a little background to that. So the sons of Korah, people who are known as the Kohathites, they're Levites. Levites who would have duties to perform in the temple or around in various places of Israel in the synagogues. They were the ones who were sort of the, the ministers on behalf, the right descendants of Aaron who are the priests among the people of Israel, the Levites. So in, in particular, though, who are these people who are the Kohathites, the sons of Korah? Well, you've got to go back to find that. 
you got to go back to Joshua 21. In Joshua 21, if, if you know the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, Joshua was the one who led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, and, and they sort of spread out and took possession of the land for there, with God going before them, clearing out the nations before them. So they take possession. Now, in Joshua 21, what you read about is you read about all the allotments of who gets what land. I'm not going to read it because it's actually kind of boring talking about who lives where. And in that chapter in particular, it talks about where the tribes of Levi are to live. And for the Kohathites, the sons of Korah, they are given towns directly to the west of Jerusalem in an area known as Gath. I'll get to why that's important, okay? So that's where these sons of Korah live. They live in the towns directly west of Jerusalem in this area known as Gath, these, these villages there. And they would be the ones who would then work in the temple in Jerusalem because from those towns in Gath, it's easy walking distance. You could commute by foot to Jerusalem very easily. That's where they lived. That's the setup for them. Now, fast forward a bit in Israel history. There is a time when the kingdom to the north, kingdom at that time known as Aram, came and attacked Israel and made their way all the way down to Jerusalem. The king of Aram, a guy named Haziel, surrounds Jerusalem and is about to sack it. So he takes over all the towns around Jerusalem and he's going to lay siege to Jerusalem, which at that time was the capital. The king at that time, the king of Israel, a man named Joash, pays off Haziel to go away. He empties the temple treasury, gives all of their riches to the king of Aram and says, here, take all of our money, just go. And he does. And he, he retreats. But remember, he had surrounded Jerusalem, which means he took over all those villages of Gath, that they were overrun and occupied by the king of Aram and the armies of Aram. Now, when that would happen in those days, when an invading country would come in, I mean, they wouldn't just burn and destroy everything. They would take, not prisoners, but servants, right, back into exile. That they would loot the towns that they took over, and then they would take the people of that town back to their own land to be servants to them. I mean, that, we read about that in the prophets when it talks about the Babylonian exile, right? That, that the people are brought into exile as servants. Well, this is what happens in this case where the king of Aram comes and surrounds Jerusalem. Doesn't end up taking over Israel, but is paid off to go away and takes the spoils of war with him. If you want to read about that, that's in 2 Kings 12. 2 Kings 12 is where you find that whole story taking place there. Now, this sets up something for us. It sets up the picture in which, all right, these sons of Korah who worked in the temple and were the Levites working in the temple had an experience in the history of Israel where a whole bunch of them were carted off as slaves and servants to the kingdom of Aram up to the north. The, nor uh, the northern border of Israel was divided by a range of mountains, one of the tallest of which was Mount Hermon, also called Mount Mizar. See reference to that in this psalm. That gives the picture then. Here's the story behind the story of, of what you see taking place in this psalm. That this is written by someone who was brought up living in one of these towns outside of Jerusalem. And his job was one of the priests who worked in the temple, leading the procession of God. A job he loved so much. But 
Something happened and he's taken away and now he's in a foreign land with foreign people who mock him and tell, tell him, yeah, where's your God now? You see that language in this psalm, in this prayer. This is the prayer that's being expressed in Psalm 42 and 43, that this Levite, one of the sons of Korah, now living in exile in a faraway place, longs to go back again to being in the temple of God, but instead is mocked and taunted by the people who've captured him and taken him away to a different land. Do you see that language coming out in the verses of this psalm? that the psalmist longs for that and cries out in this prayer to God. One more thing about this, and it has to do with the structure of of symmetry in this psalm, okay? That often we see this, and I pointed this out at other times too, that in biblical literature, often it's put together as something that's symmetrical, that the main point of of a given passage of Scripture actually comes right in the middle, all right, it's not like reading that we do today, right? Or you read a mystery novel and it's right at the last chapter at the end where it all comes together. But often in Hebrew literature, the whole thing mirrors itself to a center point, that it's symmetrical. And this one's no different. So I, I pointed out something of the structure, right? That there are three stanzas in this psalm with a repeated refrain that goes with each one of them. But notice this as well, that that the first stanza before that refrain is four verses. And then verse 5 is a refrain. Verse 6 picks up stanza 2 through verse 10, and then a refrain. And then in chapter 43, again, the first four verses are a stanza, and verse 5 is a refrain. But that middle stanza, right, that's the middle of the psalm. And not only is it the middle of the psalm, but do you notice that it's got five verses instead of four? Right, there's an extra verse in there, tucked right in the middle of that. So if you were to funnel in and find where's the exact center point of this psalm, it, it ends up being right at verse 8 in Psalm 42. Verse 8, where the whole thing comes together. Verse 8, in which the psalmist brings the whole thing together by saying, By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. A prayer. That he's writing this psalm as a prayer, but he is also giving some pretty explicit instruction to say, hey, this is a prayer. I'm praying here to you, God. I'm lifting myself up in prayer. Psalms work that way for us. I want to back out and take a a larger look at that in ways that help us see that, in ways that show us how the psalms are a prayer, okay? So looking at the bigger picture here then of what the psalms may look like, these prayers that come to us, that they are, in some ways, the prayer book of Israel. All of these psalms, there's there's 150 psalms, and, and these are expressions of Israel in prayer. And there are prayers of all kinds in the psalms, right? There there are prayers of praise and adoration. There are psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of confession, psalms of lament. That so many of the ways that Israel had to express themselves to God came in the psalms through the prayers that they have there. 
Let me, let me note something else that, if you have a Bible open, shows us something about this passage, right? I, I directed your attention to what was right before verse 1, right, the, about the sons of Korah. Did you notice what was right above that, if you have an NIV Bible? It says, book 2. But who knew that the Psalms were more than one book? That there's a second one here. In fact, if you were to thumb through all the Psalms, you would find that there are five of them. That Psalms, even though that we think of the book of Psalms as one book and it's 150 chapters long, no, no. For Old Testament Israel, for the Hebrew people, this was five books. There were five books of Psalms that were divided that way. And what we're looking at today in Psalm 42 and 43 is the very opening of Book two, book two of the prayer book of Israel. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, author Donald Miller plays around with this idea and suggests that, well, at that time, the time when the Psalms were being written anyway, that Israel had as their scriptures the law, which were the books of Moses which happened to be, you're right, five of them, right? The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Israel had as their law from God five books. And then they put together as their prayers to God five books. Donald Miller plays around with the idea of, hmm, I wonder how these things line up. Line up in the sense of, do the five books of the law in the Old Testament somehow correspond with the five books of prayer in the Psalms? I say he plays around with that because the answer is, you know what, no, there's not a direct one-to-one correlation. So please don't go home and put spreadsheets on your wall and then, you know, take thumbtacks and yarn and try to draw lines between them and that. It doesn't work out quite like that that you can find this direct one-to-one correlation with every book in the first five books of the Bible somehow matches up with every book and and chapter in the Psalms. It, It doesn't work that neatly, but the idea in general goes somewhere. That that you do see something of a pattern that takes place in examining what that idea looks like, that, that the Psalms are responses of prayer to the law, to what God says. So play with that a little bit with me, all right? So if, if we're looking at Psalm 42 and 43, the very first Psalms in book two of the prayers of the Psalms, that would, in that sense, correspond with book two of the law, Exodus, Right, the book of Exodus. How does Exodus begin? Let me put this up here for you. Exodus begins, here's what Exodus begins with. So Exodus 1, verses 8 through 10. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave our country. That's how Exodus begins. How then does 
book two of the prayers begin as a response. My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? A response in prayer. One more. Skip ahead a few chapters in Exodus. Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is is the whole burning bush scene, right, where God comes to Moses and says out of the burning bush, this is what he says. Exodus 3, beginning at verse 7. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And the response in book two of the prayer. Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. You see how this works as as a prayer book for Israel then? That that these are prayers that, yeah, we've talked about how, yep, there's, there's psalms of praise and psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of confession, psalms of lament, that there's all these different kinds of prayers in the psalms, but but they also respond to some specifics which God has brought to them, revealed to them, made known to them that this is a response. Or, or in other words, I would say it this way, that what we see in the Psalms is that we see that prayer is answering speech. Answering speech. That the first act of any prayer ought to be listening. Or, you know what, let me use the words that the psalmist uses in this psalm, that the first act of any prayer ought to be remembering. Did you catch that? Psalm 42, that second stanza, begins with those words in verse 6. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. Remember you. What exactly is this psalmist remembering? Well, if, if, if this is a prayer book that's lining up with the law of God, he's remembering the exodus. Uh, He's remembering that even though he's living in this land where he was taken away to be a slave, he's remembering that, you know what? But I still belong to a God who in the past has rescued people from their bondage. And you know what? He's a God. If he did that before, he can do it again. That's the God that I serve, that I follow, that I remember. That is the God to whom I am praying the God who rescues his people in their time of need. Prayer, then, is answering speech. You know, I I think that's, maybe that strikes us as a little bit odd because I've been a person, and maybe you're like this too, who I've sort of grown up my entire life thinking that, you know what, when I fold my hands and close my eyes and, and I start my prayer with those words, dear God, I've sort of thought, you know what, I'm starting I'm the one who's getting this conversation with God going. That I'm the one who goes to God in prayer, and then God is the one who answers me. Right? We we talk about that sometimes. We we talk about the way that God answers prayer, and, and maybe sometimes we even get a little bit too hung up on that. 
How does God answer prayer? When does he say yes? When does he say no? When does he say wait? It'll come, but in its timing. And all of these things that we talk about as answers to prayer. But I think the point that we're seeing today out of the Psalms is that really, instead of God answering our prayers, the frame of mind is that prayer itself for us is something that answers God. That God is the one who speaks first. God is the one who moves first. God is the one who does something first. Remember I pointed out that exact middle point in this psalm? right? The the place that was right in the middle, which comes in Psalm 42, verse 8. That center point where the whole psalm comes together. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Now here's the question in that verse. Who's doing the action? Where is the action coming from in that verse? Everything happening there is coming from God. God is the one who's doing everything. Look at that in verse 8. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. Not my song, his song. What the psalmist is talking about here and revealing this as a prayer is he's saying, this is a prayer that begins with God. That God is the one who acted first. God is the one who moved first. God is the one who spoke first. That we see that in the psalms. Now, I, you know, I think in some ways this should not be a surprise, right? This should not come to us as a surprise because everything else that we know and believe in our beliefs in theology sort of confirms this, echoes this. That when God first came in, that the first words in the Bible, right? Genesis 1, you go way back to the beginning of the Bible. Who was the very first one to speak out loud? God, let there be light. God spoke first. When it was time for God to make a a nation of people for himself, it wasn't Abraham who went calling out for God. It, It was God who came calling to Abraham. God spoke first. That passage we looked at in Exodus 3 where God comes to Moses in the burning bush. It's not Moses who says something first to God. It's God who says something first to Moses. That again and again and again in Scripture we see the pattern that God is always the one who speaks first. God is always the one who moves first, who acts first. We we. We have this in other ways in our church, too. In the way that we practice the sacrament of baptism. We have a tradition here where we baptize infants. Because we say in infant baptism that baptism itself is, is not about the promises that we make to God, but it's about the promises that God makes to us. Even before we're, when we're too young to even know who God is or what God does, or or have faith in God in any way. As an infant, we still say, but God moves first. God speaks first. God acts first. God makes his covenant first. That God was the first mover in all of these things. We say that about everything within our theology, our beliefs, our doctrines. So why should prayer be different? Why should prayer suddenly be this thing where, you know what, now it's our turn to go first? 
when everything else about who we are as God's people follows the pattern that God goes first and we respond. I think this psalm is showing us a pattern that prayer, in fact, is that kind of answering speech. That God speaks first and our prayers are responses, answers. So instead of getting so hung up on getting God to bend to what I want, maybe prayer is about me responding to bend to what God wants. Instead of prayer being something where I get God to come and find where I want my life to go and act according to my will, then prayer is actually me responding to God to say, I will go where you want me to go and I will follow your will. Those are things which require us to listen first. Listen to God first. That God reveals himself to us first and our prayers are answers. Listening. Remembering. Remembering who God is. Remembering what God has done. All right, let me finish with this, a little bit of a framework for how this works. Maybe you at some point in your life have learned this acronym for prayer, ACTS, right? Using those four letters of ACTS, A-C-T-S. And, and if you've learned that, right, those are an acronym that goes with things like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I don't know what supplication is. I think they mean petition or requests, but they needed a word that start with S, So they just made up this word that's not really a word and said, put that in the dictionary. Um, Maybe you've learned how that goes as sort of this model for prayer. You know what, let me me stick with that word, ACTS, but I'm going to give some new words for this, right? I'm going to make it a different acronym that follows something of the pattern that we see here in the psalm that gives us a way of how to respond to this, okay? So for the letter A, instead of adoration, let's call it address, Address meaning this, that in my prayer that I name God according to his excellent qualities. You see that in the Psalms, don't you? You see that even in the Psalm that we read here today, that God is named by his excellent qualities. Right in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In the next section, I say to God, my rock. That God is addressed or named by his excellent qualities. And you see that all through the Psalms, don't you? That God is referred to as a stronghold, a fourth, the shield, the shade by our side, the wing that covers us, our protector. All of these ways that Psalms name or address God for who he is according to his excellent qualities. That prayer gives us an opportunity to respond to God by naming who he is for what he does. My children grew up in a house where uh, when we sit down at mealtime, we say this prayer that I think is familiar to many people, but it begins with two phrases. God is great. God is good. A prayer that begins with addressing God according to his excellent qualities. A God who is great and a God who is good. Psalms give us the language for responding to God by naming who he is for what he has done. So that's the first thing we see. The next thing then, C. I'm going to call this complaint, 
But let me be particular about this. I don't mean complaint as in grumbling. Those are two different things. Right? You find examples in the Old Testament where the people of God grumbled and God sort of held that against them. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about complaint in the, name, in the sense that the psalmist is naming a situation in which God is needed. You see that in the questions that come in this psalm that we read here today, right? Where he says, as he brings forth this psalm, when can I go and meet with God? In the first section. In the second section, he says, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning and oppressed by the enemy? He's bringing a complaint before God. He's asking questions of legitimate complaint. But these are questions. The underlying thing beneath these questions is a confession. A confession that says, God, I need you. God, I, I'm not just asking you to tag along for the ride, and, and if, if you want to join, fine. But if you don't, cool, I understand. It, it's not that. It's, it's saying, God, I can't go on through my life unless you are there by my side with me. Unless you are with me. Because, God, I need you. I don't just require a little assistance. I mean, I really need God every single day. The Psalms name that complaint. Naming the situations in our lives in which we would say, you know what? I don't have what it takes in me to find my way out of this. I need God in my life. We see that as a condition that comes before God. Then, the Psalms express trust. Trust that acknowledge that God is faithful. And you see that in these Psalms as well. That God is named as one who is faithful. That the Psalmist puts his hope in God. That whenever there's a complaint, whenever there's a question of God, but I really need you and why have you forgotten me and why have you abandoned me, that there is always right behind that an expression of trust. And you see that in that refrain that's repeated over and over again three times in this psalm, that refrain that comes back to trust. Put your hope in God or I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. An expression of trust because God is faithful. And then, always some kind of statement of salvation. Salvation, acknowledging that because God is faithful, that we have hope for deliverance and redemption. You see how this psalm ends with that in Psalm 43. Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. That there is a statement there of salvation, of hope. That God redeems and restores his people. That God comes to the rescue. These things are all for us answering prayers. They are for us prayers that answer the God who moves first, who speaks first, who acts first. So here's the challenge then in this week. As you go about your week, and if you have a habit of prayer as part of your devotions, let that prayer be an answer, a response. Let God speak first through Scripture, through how he's revealed himself. Let God reveal himself first, and then let our prayers be responses to God, 
who has revealed himself to us. So that we are people who live, instead of trying to get God to bend to the life we want, prayers become God's way of bending us to the life God has placed before us. Let's do that this week. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word and the way you've revealed yourself in your word. And Lord, we, uh, we confess that often with this discipline of prayer that, that we've come before that is something that so often we've taken as something that we do first and we get that conversation going and, and somehow we look to you as the one where you have to answer what we bring before you. But God, I pray today that you would turn us, turn us to see that you have already come to us You have already revealed yourself to us. You have already bent down to us and become one of us. And may prayer then be for us a way to answer that, where we may bend towards you. Help us to do that in ways that follow you. We pray this in the name of Jesus.